Now you're going to have to listen carefully. There's naked and there's naked. It's all in the pronunciation as anyone who's had to read today's lesson from Genesis in public can tell you. Naked's a lot more fun. Or so I hear. And so I've seen, and I guess I need to explain that last statement. Huh? I spent a lot of my vacation time in Chicago, and in fact, I sneaked off this past week for a combination of a few days of rest and recreation and some church Zoom meetings. It seems these days that Zoom meetings are a bit more bearable for me if I can do them somewhere where I'm not seeing myself on the screen with my office behind me. When in Chicago, I usually end up at the Art Institute. Now, one of the more memorable shows I ever saw there was the work of Charles Ray. He does monumental sculptures that are frequently based on classical themes, classical statues, in fact, only instead of being in marble, they are in stainless steel or aluminum or fiberglass, and they're often larger than life. Occasionally, he will work on one particular item for more than a decade, I'm told. More often than not, the figures are unclothed, and that's where the worlds of naked and naked collide. The statues of the, ch of the children in the exhibit that I saw a few years ago would make you feel like, well, you're in the Garden of Eden before the fall. A very young, unclothed boy was sitting on the floor playing with a toy truck. There was an unclothed youngster, and that unclothed youngster, by the way, was about nine feet tall. Well, he was holding a frog by its feet above his head. Those two subjects were naked. But then there were the naked statues, the most controversial of which was of two people supposedly representing Huckleberry Finn and Jim, the freed slave, in the novel by Mark Twain. Perhaps 12 feet tall, I think, the upright slave towers over the bowed-down Huck. In fact, has his hand over Huck as if he's patting him on the back or keeping him down. This is where the art world began to get serious and naked took over. The statue was never installed in its original place in New York, and in fact, there was a big debate at the Art Institute about where the temporary installation should be, if at all. You see, even before the Black Lives Matter movement, the racial tensions in the country have been so high that justice, that's so unequal that people feel naked or uncomfortable, and I dare say on the part of white people feel guilty. Emotions were so high that this statue made people feel uncomfortable that reversed long-held assumptions of power. Now, I had to return to the Art Institute this week and revisit where that statue had been, and it was at the end of a small hallway gallery on the third floor, I think it was, because the Zoom meeting I was at this week was with the House of Bishops Theology Committee. We were there to focus on how the baptismal covenant of all things, which we'll be talking about and doing here in this service in a minute. We talked about how the baptismal covenant of all things mandates the reparation of racial relationships. I discovered that it can be uncomfortable for a white person to sit in a meeting on Zoom and watch black, indigenous and Asian-American faces online. 
we really can't hide behind the official ending of slavery 150 years ago as if there's no contemporary complicity. In the area of race relations, we're naked. In the story from Genesis about eating from that tree, Adam and Eve, in their snack, crossed over the line from naked to naked, innocence replaced by the all-too-human quality of guilt, a guilt arising from the universal human tendency to place blame on someone else for what has gone wrong. We like to say that Adam blamed Eve for what happened to him, much as we blame others for evil. We all have our list of who's responsible for the ills of the world, and those lists rarely include us. Someone else should take responsibility. When we read the lesson carefully, we learn that Adam is not so much blaming Eve, a real-life human being, as instead he's blaming God. Did you notice? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree. Or in fewer words, God, it's your fault. By comparison, Adam makes Eve look like a saint. At least Eve only blames the serpent. Ever since then, snakes may have frightened us, but more insidiously, God has often disappointed us. As a result, we've lived in a world of nakedness, not nakedness. A world of guilt and finger-pointing, not a world of joy in the totality and diversity of the created order. You know what goes on most often inside our heads? It's not my fault. Or the prayer, God, why did you let that happen? Or God, why don't you just do something? God becomes the dispenser of all things, good and bad. That's where we place the blame. As if God ought to be doing something. The big mistake, or perhaps I would call it the great sin, is to expect God to do something to get us out of the places in which we find ourselves, our efforts to call on God to fix it. We make our relationship with God dependent on what God does for us, and we make our relationships with others dependent on what they can do. And in that process, we miss what is truly divine, and that is the power of simply sticking in there for the sake of relationship, for the holiness of the conversation with others that relationship brings. Much of what ails our family relationships, our race relations, our country's problems, and the world's problems for that matter, is that we would rather blame others and distance ourselves from them rather than simply decide that we're going to sit beside them and listen to them and make amends. It's easier to stay as fallen human beings than to be resurrected to a new way to live, a new way that acknowledges that God loves us and every other creature under heaven, a new way that says we're then going to live out that way of love ourselves. God's not going to fix our problems. God simply loves and calls out to us to be in relationship with God and one another because that's the holy way to live. After all, we are the body of Christ, the tangible presence of God in this world. The heart of our Christian story is that God exhibits this preference for relationship by going so far as to show the world a loving human being hanging on a cross. A simple, aching desire to exhibit a love that overcomes all evil and all estrangement. It's the ultimate 
role reversal of power. I think that looking on God as the ultimate example of relationship can take away our disappointment of what God has not done and our own human finger pointing and the guilt games. And what we can do then is if we look on God as the ultimate example of relationship and try to live that way ourselves, we can replace all that awful, disappointing stuff with an understanding that when we stop blaming others and instead decide to be in relationship with them, the world is going to start to be a place not of nakedness, but of nakedness. A world of joy and wonder in all that we see and all that we experience in all the relationships that are out there waiting for us to enjoy. One day, the world might be like a child playing with a toy truck or a child holding a frog over his head. That's what creation was meant to be. And it's the kingdom toward which we are going to journey as we turn our words into actions and the covenants that we make into new ways in which we're going to live. Amen.